I grew up about 300 feet from the railroad tracks down on Pine Street in downtown Binghamton. And my father raised six kids. So when you think about being part of this country, you think about what part of this country do you want to be? So being part of this country really to me just means be a good guy. And sometimes the simplest, the simplest analogy comes down to just doing to others as you want done to yourself. So somebody that's different, somebody that works in film, somebody that works as an actor, somebody that's got a disability, this is the time. If you're really somebody special, you're really that big basketball player, you think you're somebody, that's the time, show some love. I love story. Our lives are story. We engage through story. Now that I am doing American Real, I am able to help tell other people's stories. And there's an art to that. I want people to be inspired by the content. And it's not me, it's the guest. I want them to learn from the guest as I'm learning from the guest. And once you start to see progress, um, to me, it's motivating and makes you want to work harder to get to the next piece. Now you're pushing us to record episodes. So I had guests in and I'm learning the technology. And of course, we had many challenges and lots of resistance, but I don't know, you know, you just persevere because when you have a passion for something, you find a way to get it done. I think the biggest breakthrough, I would say after episode three, and the guests, you know, a couple of guests came up to me after saying, thank you for that interview. This was the best interview of my life. That's when I knew, okay, I'm on the right track. I need to keep doing this. I need to tell people's stories. Don't be afraid to put yourself out there. Don't be afraid to be vulnerable because when you do it, you'll be surprised the response that you receive. On this week's episode of American Real, we bring you John Muchko, who is not only a longtime friend, but one of the most unique and genuine personalities I have ever had the privilege to know. John Muchko is a man of many talents, ranging from being an entrepreneur, real estate developer, an early contributor to the revitalization and rebirth of the center city where he grew up. He is a singer, actor, and former dance club owner. We were even able to convince John to open the broadcast today 
by singing a song on set. John is a proud member of the Actors Guild, and he talks about his days of appearing in films like Casino, The Age of Innocence, and Kiss of the Dragon, where he held roles alongside some of the greats like Robert De Niro, Jet Li, and Winona Ryder. Then we hit topics such as religion, the importance of family, and his father's code of ethics as a boxing instructor, and how he raised his family as a single dad. John tells us about his faith and his belief to reduce conflict and the need for the big men on campus to lead by example in treating all people with respect and equality. Finally, John opens up about his youngest son, Tommy Jersey, and his complex disorder, PWS, Prater-Willi Syndrome, a disability that affects appetite and growth. It took me over five months to convince John to come onto American Real, and I'm sure glad he did. I hope you enjoy this episode. And now, without further ado, I bring to you Mr. John Muchko. John, welcome to the show. Thanks, Roger. And look, we're going to do something a little different today. I asked you, I put you on the spot. You agreed to do it. So <laughs> yeah. we would love for you to open with, a, with whatever you want to sing. Gotcha. This stage is yours. You want me to knock something off right now? Please. Okay, let's see what we can dig up here. Oh, beautiful for spacious skies. For amber waves of grain, oh, 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 for purple mountains, majesty above the fruited plains, America, America, God shed His grace on thee and crowned thy good with brotherhood. From sea to shining sea. Wow. Thank you. You're welcome, bro. It's powerful. That's crazy, man. A lot I of emotion. Back, uh, A lot of emotion in that song. You know why? Because sometimes I roll that right into the national anthem. Because there's a lot of emotion in America. A lot of emotion with the national anthem. So sometimes I knock it right into the national anthem. When you think about your life, and all that you've accomplished, and we're going to get into it today. Sure we will. How does it make you feel to be part of this country? You know, it's pretty unbelievable because I think that, you know, in some of our discussions, I said, yeah, I grew up about 300 feet from the railroad tracks down on Pine Street in downtown Binghamton. And my father raised six kids. So when you think about being part of this country, you think about what part of this country do you want to be? You want to be an impact, you want to be involved, you want to raise a great family. So from my end, being part of this country meant to go to college, work hard in business, be a great father, be a great husband, and try to impact people's lives in a positive way. And so being part of this country really to me just means be a good guy. And sometimes the simplest, the simplest analogy comes down to just 
doing to others as you want done to yourself. So sometimes if people are complete uh, jags, sometimes maybe you could kill them with kindness, not always turning the other cheek, but be, pre be prepared for the battle. Right. Because there's a lot of battles out there, so be prepared. But sometimes when people need a little bit of love, you can give it a little bit of love and turn a negative into a positive. Yeah. No, well said. And Interesting, man. Look, we've known each other for a long time. Long You're a little time. bit older than me, so I always looked up to you because you were always moving and shaking and, and just making things happen, which in and of itself is good because they, yeah. you know, in life, I think to be successful, you have to create. You have to be willing to put yourself out there. You have to be willing to take risks. Yeah. I watched you take a lot of risks over the years. No shit. In, in, you know, in, a, in, in a time that maybe uh, you had you know, virtually nothing and were still willing to put it all on the line. Yeah. Uh, does that sum it up? Yeah, man. And you know, what, you know what it is, Brooksy, is that there's really a couple scenarios that come into play because sometimes you look at the big picture of, as you say, being part of America. But I was an entrepreneur. I don't think I've ever had a job since I was 23. And I'm plus a lot above 23. So when I graduated Cortland State, six months later, I opened up the first nightclub on State Street. But where I was leading that sort of line of questioning is that if you want to be an entrepreneur, and that means you come and go as you want, if you don't, if you're not productive, you don't make money. So production and being really accomplished is the only way you're going to put money at a table. But it goes to the next thing. There's a lot of people that work. Like my brother's a tremendous electrician. He owns his own business the last five years. Great electrician. But he worked his ass off for 25 years. But he was a tremendous employee, made a wonderful salary, had insurances, did great things. So it's not just my family, but it goes for all the people that out there that work. Really makes up the huge population that what they, what they bring to the table is huge. And sometimes you sit back and say, oh shit, I should have got a job. Maybe I'd be retiring because right now my retirement age is about 84 is when I think I retire. And 84 is flexible. It could be 87 or 88. Right. You understand what I'm saying? So yeah. it goes back to saying when you take risks as an entrepreneur, it always seems like it's on the line. Even right now, John, you're successful. You do this truthfully, but every day it's a battle. And when, when you're on your own, it's still a battle. So you just keep grinding put yourself out there because if you're not willing to be out there don't look for other people to do it for you so I compliment the worker for sure and the guy that wants to be the entrepreneur if you want to be the guy and gal because women are as tough as nails guys tough as nails you want to be the entrepreneur strap it up and get ready to roll because when you're the king get your ass kicked some days yeah speaking of women yeah. Um, I'm all for women women accelerating uh, especially in the workforce, uh, you employ a lot of people. Yeah. Uh, wh what do you what do you see across uh, you know the couple of decades that you've been doing this? Um, do you see a rise in women taking more leadership roles, owning their own businesses, being entrepreneurs? Well, definitely a rise, but truthfully, women have always been a massive part behind the whole shebang of being the entrepreneur, meaning that you got some cat that's a great lawyer, he's a guy, the guy that runs his office is a woman, the guy that keeps him organized is the woman, the gal that handles all the money is a woman. So really, women have been running the show, just nobody knew who the hell was running the show. But for a guy like myself, my wife has been doing it. And my wife, Catherine, is tremendous. Take a great lawyer, 
could be a great lawyer as a, as a woman, because one of my lawyers is a woman and a great lawyer. But if you take a great guy who's a lawyer, the people running his show are probably the gals handling all the cash, running everything, smart as a whip, and they could have been running the show forever. So women are going to continue in a more, I think, uh, visible entrepreneurship. And, I, and for those that really know, already know, the people that run the show are the women anyway. Right. So, That's right. Yeah, That's right. It's, it's for sure. Uh, you're 100% self-made, John, and that's what I really respect uh, about you. Um, what is it that you have inside of you? Can you describe what it is that pushes you so hard? I think being independent, being on my own, um, knowing that, uh, you know, when you have people that work for you, if they work, you expect them to work and be productive. And from the drive as an entrepreneur, it's again, if you don't produce, then you don't make money. And if you don't make money, then really the ship starts to take on water. So I, I don't want to say just to drive, but it, it's the drive to produce because I have a, a wife that, you know, I say I'm responsible for, for, but truthfully, she's as impactive in my business as anybody, but I have a family and uh, I have children and I think that every day you wake up, you better figure out a way that you're going to make the money because some people sit back and, you know, they go out and there's not production of cash. They're not seeing it. But fa the fact of the matter is dig deeper, look harder, work longer, think outside the box. Once you start to do that and figure out a way that is going to bring the cash to the table because that's really what it's about in so many segments of what people do. So what drives me is... I like to think on my own. I like to be independent. If you want to be independent, you want to be an entrepreneur, get ready for the battle. And for young folks <laughs> out there that might be thinking about an entrepreneurial path, what advice would you have? I would sit back and say, no matter how poor you are, because I was very poor. I mean, we grew up on the corner of Pine and Liberty Street. My father worked on the back of a garbage truck for 25 years. He was tough as freaking nails. He was what old time workers are made from. He was an inspiration for me that says how hard you work. So he worked for the city of Binghamton for 30, 40 years. And uh, back then, <clears throat> you didn't work like sitting and throw a can and some They threw the cans up on top of the truck. So literally you sit back, when you have nothing, figure out how you're gonna get a little bit of something and build off of it. And I'm going to finish this story a little, Raj, because it's really good for the young guys right out there, but it doesn't have to be age limited. It has to do with entrepreneurial directed, which means that if you want to get something going, you want to buy real estate, you want to build a business, it isn't going to necessarily happen like this. Don't think it should happen like this. What you need to think about is how do you get enough revenues together that you can start the platform to build it? Get an idea and something that you enjoy doing, which if it's hard to put all the revenues, think outside the box. Think about how can I bring a partner in to sit back and say, somebody's got more scratch than creativity. You got a lot of creativity. Bring somebody with a little scratch and share the wealth. Take 50% of the business. Take 50% of the real estate. Don't be afraid to share it because what happens is you create a great business, um, individual businesses, you create great partnerships, 
and you can build off it. So one thing I'd say to, when you say young, I sit back and say to the 30, 40, 50 year old. Great. You see a great two family house, you've been renting forever. You want a two family house, you got no money. You don't know where to go. Literally sit back and say, make sure the house is everything you want. Find a partner, own 50% of it. Do it another time, six or a year later. After two, three, four years, you might have two, three, four, five pieces. So it goes back to your st uh, story, brother, and that is go out and bring something in, take a piece of the pie, mm -hmm. but you better bring something to the table. So if you're the creative end, think, work, be productive. Don't take things for granted. Don't take your partner for granted. Work harder than you're expected to work. Work harder than you're expected to work. With that type of story, you can really be a productive asset. Because if you're not a productive asset, then your assets probably go back out the door mm -hmm. if you're following my drift. Yes, yeah, so you build that platform. And then, and then what? What happens after you're able to build that initial platform so you have some income coming in? How do you take it to that next level? What you need to do is because you're never gonna, it's not gonna take you to a point of independent wealth. It's not gonna take you to the point of independence. What you really need to do is maybe you need to have another job. Maybe have two jobs. I know people that want to get into real estate. They're very productive working in computer industry. They're very productive as plumbers, electricians, carpenters, etc. But the fact of the matter is the idea of thinking, I want to be in real estate, I'm going to give up what makes the scratch. I'd say, Not a good idea. take the scratch and work. Just remember when you work that extra time, don't forget about your children. Don't forget about your wife. Because if you're working too much and you forget about your wife or your children, None of it, it's all bullshit, it's not worth it. So you really want to uh, remember your family, save enough time for your family for love, but don't give up your job that's the cash production, try to create your independence and create your independent workings off of something else because you just can't necessarily come right into the gate and be and have the same financial independence that you're looking for eventually. Awesome. Who is John Munchko? What are you made of? A guy that um, loves being a father. Greatest thing that I've ever accomplished, being a father of my 24-year-old daughter, Julia, my 21-year-old son, Jack, uh, my little boy, Tommy Jersey. And uh, Tommy Jersey, his name is, uh, I named him after my father, who was Tommy Jersey Munchko. We taught boxing at the Boys Club for 25 years, free, loved training kids is when the boys club was really a boys club and everybody used to hang out in center city and you'd box and when you had a confrontation with an individual in the boys club you might meet my father and you both would go inside a couple of benches put some gloves on and punch each other with some gloves on and shake hands hopefully when you're all done it would be a situation that really the argument was nothing but maybe a big bully got his ass kicked that day so the big bully said maybe i should be a gentleman and realize being a gentleman isn't a bad concept. And so, who is John Munchko? You know, I got uh, married at about 37 to my wife, Catherine. Been with her for 31 years. That was tremendous because 15 years in a nightclub business, I was an animal. I sit back and go back and say that uh, finding out to be a, a husband was the best thing that I really, it was best. My wife is, a tremendous person, a tremendous Christian, a great wife, great mother. I couldn't ask for any, to have found any better. When God said, John, you've been off your charts for about 15 years. You, 
you're lucky you're living because I may have saved your life 15 times. He brought Catherine and definitely was the saving grace. He's been my best friend, my wife, et cetera. So who's John Munchko? It's sort of like, well, is there family John Munchko? You know, I, I sing. You had me do that song. I walk in, you say, you do a song. It's like, yeah, Roger, you're out of your mind. Yes, I'll sing something and prop for you. We'll, we'll do something. But, you know, I love singing. Uh, I've had my Screen Actors Guild card for 25 years. And, uh, you know, there was times that, uh, not to get off on a tangent, but that when I even had to audition for the co-starring role in Die Hard with a Vengeance, uh, getting bit parts or uh, bit parts like in Kiss of the Dragon in Paris or Switzerland, and we'll go to a different topic. I don't yeah. want to change topics on you. But what, what happened is even around these people, whether you're around Pesci or De Niro or Luc Besson or Jet Li in Paris, and the people I worked in tighter scenarios than here normally, like with Jet or with De Niro, literally to the point of trying to kick Jet's face down the laundry chute and kiss the dragon before I get blown up, or Jack Warden sticking him up against the wall and De Niro grabbing me, pulling him off him, kidnapping kids on As the World Temper. Here's, here's where this goes, and we'll go to the film, but here's what I want to tell you. Is that um, all of that, you know, where people look and say, it's almost back to entrepreneurship. Wow, isn't it unbelievable? It's like, wow, well, big deal. You when you break saying? it all down. They put, they put their pants on just like you and I. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they're a star today. They're not a star later. Their whole world collapses on them. Their brain, you know, implodes. It's like, hey, get a life. Take a break. You know, shit, you got to roll. It worked out great. Maybe it continues. Maybe it doesn't. So during these times of the film, it takes me back to John Munchko. I sat back and said, I would rather be an entrepreneur that I could get into the car and drive to New York, get on a plane and fly to Paris, get on a plane and fly to Vegas and work at a film like Casino, fly to some of these places, get the entertainment, and you never know what could happen. I mean, listen, you never know what could happen. Right. But the fact of the matter, brother, is this, is that it was far more important to me to be a father, which I, when my daughter Julia was born, it was like, wow, that's real. And, and, and so, being a father and being a husband and being a businessman, when we grew up, when my dad raised six kids, we were poor. I mean, I remember standing in line at Columbus Park down in the ghetto. We'd be standing there with a box, picking up powdered milk, a big five-pound freaking bar of cheese, uh, picking up stuff, and we walked there to get there, and we walked home. And as a family, we were tight, and we, were, we loved each other huge. So I sat back and I said, you know what? Buy buildings. Luckily, I got out of the nightclub industry. Great business. You're the king. I'm the greatest guy in the world. Blah, blah, blah. It's like, hey, you want to be king today? Because you know what? I'm lucky I'm living today. Yeah. So sometimes it's like, who's John Munchko? Wants to stay independent. Wants to be a father. Wants to be a husband. Don't want to shit it up. I'd rather keep my head screwed on if I can. If you can. Because you always make wrong steps. Right. But it's been a priority. So that's who John Munchko is. Stay independent work hard, be productive, get the right stream, continue to grow. And every day I wake up, I literally sit back and um, literally say, man, you bet, literally no shit. You better be productive today. Hmm. Get something done, accomplish something. And so you need to wake up with that mindset and that something cannot be just trivial stuff. You need to be productive. So, so you, you constantly put that pressure on yourself really every to, day. to motivate yourself. Every day, every day. From the nightclub industry, I go to. I had the habit of going to bed one, two, three, four in the morning. I still go to bed every day, one, two, three in the morning. I get up working. at six thirty, seven, seven thirty. 
Um, you know, this morning, I think it was 7.30. I hit the hay last night about 2.30 because I wanted to make sure I got an early night's sleep for you. Thank you. <laughs> no, so I hit the hay about 2.30. I said, what's wrong with you, man? Get your dead ass to bed. You know what I'm saying? So I uh, hit the hay and uh, late as per usual. But you know what I'm saying, bro? That's where it's at. Let's talk a little bit more about your dad, yeah. Tommy Jersey. Yeah. So when you were a young boy... Um, you grew up, you said poor. By the way, a lot of people who sat in that chair grew up poor, as did fact. I. Yes, sir. Uh, it's great to see Yeah, that you've taken the lessons of, of long ago and, and, and made a great life for yourself and others around you with hard work. But um, tell us about your dad. He was a hard worker, but what was the day-to-day -day like? There was a lot of kids. Did you have one-on-one -on -one time with him? Did you know, he teach you life lessons? We, he literally probably left for work 6, 6.30, 7 o'clock in the morning, maybe earlier. Come home at 4.35, 6 o'clock. He worked his ass off. I mean, you worked hard. Back in the old days, working for, you know, the um, uh, maintenance department for the city of Binghamton, literally picking up refuge on the streets, shovel, snow. I mean, you worked, you worked hard. And I mean, today, when people say they worked hard, it's like, dude, get a life. And, and get your shit together because that ain't hard. You want to have a hard day? Let's figure out what hard is. I could give you hard. So truthfully, my dad worked hard because like I say, back in those days, there's guys that were quarterbacks at North High School, kids that I grew up with, kids like Ricky Pace or other na I, names I could throw out. But people that literally take the garbage cans from the street, throw them up to the truck, and that th these guys worked hard. City of Binghamton, uh, maintenance people, they work their ass off. Yeah. And so, who was my dad? You know, he, he sent us to St. Mary's Assumption School. I can remember, I, tell, I say this to some of these things, and we'll keep, this, or we'll keep our thing rolling at your tempo. But That's I'll give great. you something. But, Please. you know, I can remember always wanting to get a pair of penny loafers. Shit, then I think I had to find a penny to stick in a penny <laughs> loafers. No shit. Wow. Well, you had some scratch, and you were looking wow. for the dime. You're right. But I can remember my penny loafers and the leather soles wore out, literally walking to school, we would put cardboard or things on the bottom of them where they had been worn out. And so we walked maybe a half a mile to school. It wasn't too far from Corner Pine and Liberty to St. Mary's Assumption, probably four, five, six blocks down. And um, so my dad sent us to a, a Catholic school. And uh, he, was, he was a good person in the sense that he, he had an honor system and a code of ethics because you know, we grew up as a boxer as well. So when you're a fighter, you're either a bully, you're either a gentleman, you're either a guy that's got your friends' backs, and that's how my family grew up. We grew up as gentlemen, we got your back. Respect. Maybe somebody had to get their ass kicked, you stood up for them, but you were never a guy that would grab somebody, never touch nobody, never caused a fight. It was, it was easier to be there as a friend for backup because I can always remember people bringing me for backup, but I would never be a bully. I would never touch anybody. And I carried that concept. If you think about it, you're talking about my dad, carried it into the nightclub industry. Mm -hmm. There's no reason to touch people. There's no reason to bully people, to belittle people. Treat them with respect. And what did your dad, what advice did he give you? Well, when it I came can tell you this. If it came to defending your brothers and sisters, that's what it came down to. Mm -hmm. Like I tell you a quick little story. I can remember when I was probably maybe seventh or eighth grade, 
I, I was still young, seventh or eighth grade. We lived in a little two-family house on the corner of Pine and Liberty Street. And this 30-something-year-old man upstairs picked a fight with me. And I remember telling my dad about it. And my dad had hands that, when you look at it, his knuckles were about the size of silver dollars. No exaggeration. Each knuckle the size of... Because in the old days, you didn't like fight every three, two, three, four months. You might fight every week. So he had hands that looked like sludge hammers. Mm -hmm. But I can remember this guy picked a fight with me as a kid. And here's some guy 20 years older wanted to square up with me and fight on my porch. I can remember my dad come out and the guy started as respectful to the guy. But then the guy reached for my dad. He didn't give him a wham, but he gave him a open hand. Knocked that guy shit into, you know, boom. Took. Laid him out, but I, I can remember not knocked him out, wasn't aggressive, wasn't uh, rude but was talking to the guy, and then the guy made a move to come at him. And I can remember him just going, wham, with an open hand. Thank God he didn't punch him. But my point is that, what does that teach you? It means go back to being passive. Be a gentleman. Don't attack. Don't grab. Don't touch. But you have the right to defend yourself. I'm a Christian, but I can tell you now, if you hit me, I'm going to knock your shit into next next neighborhood because... I'm going to defend myself. And if you go after my children or my wife, I'm going to defend myself. And I'd sit back and say, if everybody worked on that premise, you think about how many less fights you have. Sure. Think about, because nobody wants to grab, nobody wants to intimidate, nobody wants to, but you're going to defend. So maybe that person that went to the wrong place, maybe he stops. But that's why I say, take the aggressiveness out, take the bully out of it, take the a tough guy out of it and just be a gentleman because when you're a gentleman and when you got something that's when you got something to say on a confrontation martial arts boxing miscellaneous trades you don't need to show it sit back and be cool but sometimes you got to address it and at 62 years old i could tell you you know i've had to i've had to do some entertainment into my 50s lately in the last four five six years no but in my 50s I can still remember having to address some issues. Did your dad teach you how to fight? Definitely. What was his, what did he say? Come in, set it up, keep your hands high, block it, jab, jab, boom, straight one, set him up a little bit, next straight one, set him up, come through with a straight arrow, knock their ass out. Because if you think about it, so many people come in with these big haymakers. Right. But if you throw with arrows straight, you can really, uh, Straighten them up. And again, my dad really, we trained because we loved the sport. We didn't train ever to be bullies. And that's huge. And if you think about it, because so many parents I hear it's say. A big difference. Big difference. Yes. So many parents say, just punch him first. Be the first to throw the punch. I sit back and say, that's such bullshit. Don't be the first to throw the first punch. Because maybe there's no punch to be. Don't be the first to draw your gun. Maybe no gun's got to be drawn. If you think about it, they say, well, what if you're late? Well, if you're late, then you weren't prepared. But if you're prepared, then you can address this. You think about it. It's, so what did he say? You know, so we used to always come in, jab, jab, boom, you know, move a little bit, a little bob and weave. We always trained hard, loved Muhammad Ali, loved Mike Tyson. And so if you train and fight like Tyson or Muhammad Ali, how can you go wrong? Think about it. You know what I'm saying? And so you sit back and say, John, did you have a lot of confrontation? Lots. Really? hundred? 60, 70, On 80, the street. On the streets, in the nightclubs, uh, all over the place. Always. On the lacrosse fields. Did you ever get hurt? 
Not really. I can remember getting uh, one time when a gentleman was going to pull a gun on me in the uh, Raskeller. But back when I owned it, it was uh, confetti's. And uh, we were downtown, downstairs, and he was threatening some people. And I said, you know, he just got out of uh, prison. He was, uh, uh, I think he was in prison, according to some of the cops I spoke to, for six or seven terms in terms of felony heroin. And I had said to him, uh, yeah, let's go, man. Let's get you gun and see what you can do with it. I can remember several people at the nightclub standing there watching me, like, say, wow, what is Munchko shit is he going to do? Yeah. So I can remember we walked out to the car, parked right in front of the nightclub. He put his hand in the door. Now, this one, I took a little different turn of approach, where as soon as he put his hand and locked his hand inside the door to get this gun, he said, I did jack him up first because I wasn't going to wait to see his gun. But I could, here's my point. You said, did you get hurt? So I gave him, this cat looked like a Dennis Rodman. We became, we became friends after this confrontation. But I had several people there that trained at different martial arts places that bartend for me. My old friend from Setter City, a cat named Pace was there. So we're watching this. But I can remember jacking this guy up. And as he laid across the top of that hood, he turned around and hit me with a punch right on the side of my head, knocked me right on my ass. It was awesome. I hit the ground, bounced back up in about a tenth of a tenth of a second. He jumped in his car back seat where the driver had left about a 16 foot pack. <laughs> so did it ever get hurt? No. But I mean, taking a little, taking a little shot in the face mm -hmm. was always entertaining. Sure. You know what I'm saying? But this cat, this person I was talking about, he literally, he called me, he said, I ain't never seen no, you know, really what I ain't never seen no white boy fight like you. He and I became friends. And that is what I'm referring to. When you are a gentleman, as crazy as this character was, we became friends. And uh, not friends like hanging out drinking friends, but respect friends. We communicated. We got along. But it went across the police beat. Mutchko just got hit across the face with a 357. They thought I got hit in the face with a butt of a... But my point is... You know, he gave me a little zippity doo dah day right in the face that knocked me right down on my ass, you know. But it was entertaining because I can remember hitting that ground like it was fire coming up that fast and that car breaking out. So the answer to your question, did I get hurt? No, but I always, seldom do I get touched, which is a lucky thing. You know what I'm saying? Because there's no reason to be touched. But I can remember taking a little zip to the face that day. That was entertaining for me and do, sort of appreciate it. Do you have any fear? Zero. Fear of God. Fear of Jesus Christ. Because truthfully, being a Christian, you know, if you believe in the devil, then you got to believe in God. If you're a Jewish cat, and so many of my best friends, best man in my wedding, my business partners are Jewish, I say I love the Jews. If you're a Muslim, you know, let's get into a, a peaceful situation. Do you see what I'm saying? So if you're a Christian, what can you fear? You can fear God. But do I fear man? No, because if you're big and bad, like really big and bad, the worst thing you could do is kick my ass. So therefore, that ain't much because pain goes away. So have fear in the right place of God. I would say I can only pray that I could keep moving on the right path so I get to where I want to go, which is going to be heaven. And that's why I mentioned different religions. I have huge respect for the different religions. I don't set mine better than anybody's. But my point is, let's hope you fear something. Because you don't want to just fear nothing. You know, in terms of, is there anything in life? 
I, I want to make sure I don't have to fear ever losing my family. I want to take care of my family. I want to be there for my family. But I do fear God. And uh, in terms of fear, you know, because the monetary possessions people could take, and if you really believe in the things you and I are talking about, you could earn them back. There are so many great businessmen and women that have lost everything. And came back. That have come back. So yeah. you fear about, you know, uh, reprise, you know. Sometimes I can remember when I was addressing some issues for a couple of lawyers here in town, addressing some rough buildings that I had uh, 20 or 30 different evictions. And I can remember telling my wife when we lived in Vesta one day, hey, cat, don't stand in front of the picture window today because somebody said they're going to come by and shoot it with a shotgun. But it wasn't fair. It was, again, more a little more preparatory right. to where... Be smart. Be smart. Right. Because you get a lot of threats. You get a lot of crazy people. Mm-hmm. You talk about God, you talk about different religions. Isn't it all the same God? Well, you know, listen, I think it's a different God. Because if you think about it, I'm sure Muslims have their God. The Jewish cats are in theirs, ours. You know, my point is, what it really comes down to is this, is people have religious beliefs. Think about this. I said I'm not going to get off on religion. Did you understand that? You I, thought we that said, one? I thought we said politics. Did you follow that one, Kat? <laughs> but I'm going to say this to you about religion, because I don't mind going to this with you. If people, whether you're a Christian with a Jewish cat or a Muslim cat, would I sit back and say, why can't they do what they want to do and leave them to worship the way they want? Right. And the only way that's going to become a conflict is if we get into the scenario where there's got to be violence. I'd sit back and say, you should be able to worship as you want. And the Jewish cat should be able to worship the way they want. And the Christian should be able to worship. And why do you got to judge me? Because I don't want to judge you. And why don't you stop judging me? Because I don't want to judge you. And if somebody can draw a picture of Jesus Christ upside down, and we don't want to think we want to kill you for drawing a picture of it, then you shouldn't want to kill somebody else for drawing a picture of Muhammad. My point is worship and peace. And let people... And, more importantly, listen to this. We'll get in. Can we please go to a topic? Are you shitting me? <laughs> so anyway, here's my point. If you, it goes back to the same thing with violence. Rod, check this out, though. Let the cats worship in peace. Yeah. Without right. prejudging them. That's right. Let them enjoy themselves. Let them worship to Muhammad. Let them worship as a Jewish cat. You know, there's different religions. Why do we always have to be so judgmental? Mm-hmm. So let's cut the let shit. Let people be. Let people be. Let, just let them worship. That's right. Because why should you impact it? Right, right. You know what I'm saying? Why impact it? And so um, I'm blessed to be a Christian because I grew up as a Catholic. But when I was a Catholic, you know, I was an altar boy. I used to drink the priest's wine. I'd go in maybe because I used to go back and drink and eat his round hosts. You know what I'm saying? One day a priest didn't give me a dollar fifty for a funeral. I think I threw fingernail polish on his car. You know, I was out of my mind. I was a rough kid on the streets. I can remember sleeping out on the streets, literally in washing machine boxes. And I'd sit back and say, John, where does this go as a Catholic? Love the Catholics. But I became a Christian, which put me on where I didn't have to report to a priest to when I did something wrong. And if I eat meat on Friday, I ain't going to hell either. So out of this topic to change topics, but I got direct, direct uh, line of communication with with God. I love that because, you know, it is a walk with Jesus Christ. It's a walk with you and God. And I don't have to report to nobody and nobody can tell me how bad I've been 
because if you're true to yourself, then you know how bad you've been. That's why I say if you think about going back to bullies, be peaceful, man. Keep your hands off people. Stop intimidating, but stop pushing up on people. Stop coveting what people want. Going back to religion, think about all this lines of going back into the religions. Let the cats worship the way they want. Why, do we, why be so judgmental? The only time things come into conflict is when they want to impact our life with theirs. So impact your life, don't impact our life. Right, right. Interesting how it, it sort is. of circles it is. Yep. around a little bit. And I say this to you, Brooksy. I, I tell my children this too. There's always going to be more people wealthier than you, prettier than you, more handsome than you, have more things you want. I'd love some of the shit you and I are talking about to really re reverberate with some of the people that might be listening. I, Ten people listen, a thousand people listen. Hey, listen, I did this shit for you because I love you. Because you're a great <laughs> interviewer, you. you're a great person. But I'm going to tell you, if you never covet what people have, that's going to take you to another thing. Let the person be prettier, handsomer, have more money. Is it that relevant? Just get what you got. That's right. Be happy with you got. But be happy for them. But even if you don't want to be happy for them, think about this. Even if you don't want to be happy for them, let them enjoy it. Let them don't covet it. Mm -hmm. Just do your thing. Don't always look outside the box of what they have. Because if you just sit back and say, I ain't pretty, but I always had a beautiful woman. And I married, in my opinion, the most beautiful woman in the world for me. You dig what I'm saying? I love this person. So if you don't covet what people have, think about the conflict that takes out of, takes out jealousy. If you don't touch people, so much less conflict. Does that mean you shouldn't defend yourself? Defend yourself. But let there be a true defense. Don't jump the gun. The same thing with pulling a gun. We are concealed weapon carriers. I, you know, I always believed in just self-physical production because I always enjoyed it. So it was always like, don't give me an opportunity to kick your ass because that ain't my goal. But, so, but we all are concealed weapon carriers at our household. Wrong doors are knocked down. It'd be wrong place to, to intimidate because we're prepared not to intimidate. But it goes back around. It, a lot of things circle around. Don't touch. Don't cover other people's things. Don't be jealous of other people. Go after your self-development. And if you could grow as a man or a woman just a little bit every day, and try not to let the slide down, then just keep going after it. And that was self-development. And the world would be a better place. Yeah, man, don't all, be laying that freaking physical line on me about the world. But, but you know what? The world would be a better place. Yes. Because you think about it. There if is everyone a, did a little bit every day just, to improve their lives. And, and not literally was jealous of somebody else. Right. And didn't bully other right. people. That's right. And didn't necessarily have to intimidate other yeah. people. The problem is that there's so many people that want to get over on you. They talk so much bullshit that you need to be prepared and separate the right and the wrong because somebody's got to make the analysis and you need to be fair and make the analysis. Geez, I'm sorry I didn't pay you to rent this month, but you know that they had to scratch. Geez, I, you know, it's been two months. I'm sorry. It's like, dude, you got to get a life. Either pay it or no, because everybody's entitled to when they work, to what they get paid. So you've got to separate it from still necessarily being, being online, being on point to take care of business. Great. It's tough. Let's talk about sports. It was a big part of your life. Big part. You played lacrosse. You played yeah. football. Yeah. Um, your dad was a boxer. Did you, did you fight as well? I didn't fight in the ring. Okay. I didn't fight in the ring. You know, 
Um, my brother Tommy used to be a tremendous fighter, but um, I think knowing what my dad went through in the ring, I can remember, you know, I, I don't like to, can I mention certain names sometimes? Absolutely. You know, I can remember when, uh, because I used to really sort of enjoy fighting and I was trained really well. I can remember a kid named Mike Nixon who was a, a tremendous boxer from this area. And I can remember he lived on Pine Street and Mike was a great fighter as well. I mean, like a ring fighter. So Michael was a great ring fighter. And my dad was always the instructor. He was the instructor that trained everybody in Center City in the ghetto. You, you went down to the boys club, that's where you fought. But Mike was a great fighter. I can remember one day when Mike came down, we used to sit at a little kitchen table at my house in Liberty Street. Mike was sitting at the table there saying, man, I'd love to see your, your son John start getting in the ring and start and fighting. I think I can remember my dad talking him out of the car. Yeah, man, it's not happening. But I can remember that conversation about getting me into the ring, and that's when Mike was probably in the top 10, you know, uh, middleweight maybe in the world. I think at one point he, was, had a great, he had a great rating. But your dad didn't want that for you. My dad didn't want that for me. And thank God, because you know what? That's a tough world. It's a tough world if you think about it. There's a rumor out there that you once tackled a tree. Is that true? I didn't tackle a tree. The real story is that we were at football camp. Okay. And I used to hit everything that moved. And I can remember running down to football practice one day. And the coaches might have been 20, 30, 40 yards behind them, and I didn't remember this. But I can remember going down and literally running full speed and putting my face into the side of a tree. And that football camp, I think I broke two football helmets. And that means splitting the helmets in the front. And you don't really tackle the tree. The tree doesn't move. But you mean, did I give a tree one hell of a shot running full speed into it? The answer is yeah. That's true. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah, man. I played linebacker. You know, that was, that was the day of Ray Nitschke, Dick Butkus, you know, 1972, 74. You're, you're freaking, you know, back then you people ran across your hook zone and linebacker, you dropped back in your hook, hook zone on a pass. The receiver would come down and break across the middle. You used to literally be able to stick your arm out and clothesline the guy under his throat. Now think about the concept. You're a receiver coming down, looking for the ball from your quarterback, and back then it was legal for a linebacker to drop back and drop a clothesline, take his forearm, and drop it underneath your throat. Wow. That shit was crazy. <laughs> you understand it. what I'm saying? <laughs> and and it, here's my point, and it was legal. Obviously that, that is essentially on by the wayside. <laughs> right. But uh, you know, linebacker is what I played, and uh, it was a tremendous, entertainment it was great being part of a team and Judd Blanchard was a tremendous coach and I had so many great football friends and players around me it was a great part of the entertainment and lacrosse you were part of lacrosse when it first began here right first team we ever had in Binghamton New York was called the Slukies and um, it was about 10 guys from Binghamton North High and we were bussed over to uh, Central to about 30 35 players over there and uh, we had a combined team called the Slukies, which I think they're still called to this day since 1972. And I was the first captain uh, on the Slukies and the first combined sports team for Binghamton North High and Binghamton Central. First team that was ever combined. Neat. And I played lacrosse for, till I, I played at the World Games in 2006 in a Masters Division, Grand Masters Division. So I think I played for like 35 years straight. Wow. What position? Defense. Of course. Right. You know what it comes down to, Roger? There's a certain thing that we're seeing here. It, it always comes down to violence, doesn't it? 
you know, you played linebacker, you get to knock the shit out of the people, and it, it was tremendous, and you were always an enforcer, and you always got to stand up for your friends. It was always a great place to be. Right. And in defense, back then in lacrosse, you could take a 30 or 40 yard full sprint and lay somebody out. I'm sure you hurt a few people. Oh my God. In your day. I'm, there were many people, I don't think sometimes. They did not want to be on the other side. Did not come back out on my side or didn't come back out onto the field. Some people could sit back and say either this is BS, but if you were from this county, you remember the day where people would get laid out. It was hmm. nuts. Hmm. It was. But you were doing your job. We did, it was all legal. Right. That's the crazy thing. Mm-hmm. Rules, I can't say they're better today, but they're more human today. Right. Because back then you sit back and say, people took a beating. Yeah. I mean, you beat the shit out of your own teammates. And when they went out and played in another a team, it was like, dude, this is a party. I had John Mutzko kicking my ass every day. And I am kicking your ass because you can't hurt me if you tried. So it was great um, for your teammates because they became tough as nails. It was a, it was a tremendous, it was a tremendous team sport, and we remained friends forever. I bet. Yeah. So let me ask you a question: If you could go back to the days of the gladiators, yeah, yep, would you have been a gladiator? If I went back to the days of the gladiator. Probably some of my theories my dad taught me about being a gentleman would go out the window and you would just go out and kill. There's no question. But here's, you know, because I like to be logical. So with a crazy question like that, would you go back to be a gladiator? It's sort of entertaining. So the answer is absolutely. You would train like a bastard. Train with every weapon you can because I did that as myself. Trained with lots of weapons, like lots of weapons. So you train like hell, and you go out and you fight. But it goes back to the theory that I told you earlier. There is going to be bigger and stronger and better and faster. And So as a gladiator, maybe you ain't that smart because you're going to end up dead pretty soon, bro. Guaranteed. You're going to have, your ass is going to be grass. One of these weeks, one of these months, eventually it happens. You slip, you fall, boom, here's my point. I'm way too smart to want to trip and fall and end up dead. So therefore, would I have done it? Maybe I would have liked to have been, here we go, full circle, baby. Maybe I would have liked to run the gladiator events so I don't have to end up, you know, if you're smart enough to know, you're going to end up dead. You know what I'm saying? So and we're, that's an interesting question, Brooksy. That's an interesting question. I will tell you this. I would have liked the 1910, 20s, and 30s when you could get into cars and when there's road rage, you could run full speed into a car, run them off into the road, into the river. You could shoot them up with guns. That would be a hell of a time. Yeah, when I think about your personality, I just, here's what I see. Whatever you do, you're giving it your all. You're yes. putting your heart, your soul, your strength, whether it's your family, whether it's uh, the sport teams, that's you. That's I, how I, I see I'd like you. To, I'd like to think so. The point yeah. is, if you're going to make the effort, give it your all. Go all if in. If you're going to make the effort, be as good as you can be. If it wasn't hitting the heavy bag for hours and hours, like I did all over the place from American Fitness on the Parkway or the gyms at the YMCA or at the Boys Club, if you're going to train, train to be great. Don't train to be average. Because even if you're average, train to be great. Because that will still put you 
70, 80, 90% above everybody else because the other people aren't training. Train to be great. And it goes with almost anything you do, whether you want to be in real estate, it's sort of like design, building design. I love designing interiors, but I studied not to just be me, the greatest in the world. It's like I studied the great designers in Miami and Santa Monica and Midtown Manhattan because these guys are great and they're building beautiful things. Can you learn from them? And the answer is absolutely. Can you be conscientious enough to study and learn what they're designing and building? And the answer is yes. If you really care, you'll learn and you'll listen. And then you can always add in your own things. You could always think outside the box. You could always create something different. Maybe even better than that. But there's nothing wrong with learning. So let's go from the battlefield as a gladiator to the theater. Theater. You started in the theater in college. Portland State. Yeah. So how did that happen? You know, it, it came the same thing, man, because I trained in lacrosse at Cortland State. I was off the charts when I was playing lacrosse. Not too many people that were athletes in those days worked in theater. Right. And so, you know, it, it's, a, it's an interesting scenario. So at Cortland State, I literally somehow, which I majored in communications, found a vein to jump into to uh, working as an actor in several of the play productions at Cortland State. I probably did five or six different plays. Did someone approach you or did you just have Somebody, an interest? You know what, I had an interest, but I think someone approached me at that time because this is no shit, Brooksy. One of the things I played was, a. this is no kidding, bro, was a gladiator. Because I played a gladiator in Salome. You understand? Think okay. about Salome. Okay. So I had the gladiator uniform and the spear and the thing, and literally to the point of my athleticism, to where the production director, Doc Palmer was his name, ended up having Salome, during part of this thing, jump into my arms with some type of move, whatever. You understand my and point? you were the gladiator. At the gladiator yeah. at Cortland State. No kidding. So it was sort of wild. So, you know, I majored in communications. Um, I worked a lot. I, you know, a lot of people don't know my background that, you know, I as well worked on the debate team. So you want about somebody to kick your ass, but I worked on the debate team. And when you're debate team, think about the clientele and the type of people that were on the debate team. It wasn't always the athlete. And think about the people that were on stage. It wasn't always the athlete. And so I'm going to interject this here too, Brooksy, because you never know where your audience goes. So it takes you back to the next thing that I would tell high school kids and adults. When you're that big badass and you're handsome and you're the athlete, blah, blah, blah. And I was never handsome. But my point is when you're that cat and you see somebody that's on the debate team and you see somebody that's on that theater and you see somebody with a disability, that's the time if you're really anybody is a big athlete. If you're anybody is a man on campus, my advice, that's the time you show a little love. You don't try to bully the theater guy. You respect him what he does. The debate team guy, you respect him what he does. The guy who's gay, you respect him. You respect the disability. So if you're really a badass, then you're going to give a little bit of extra love to these individual groups where when I grew up, or even in today, sometimes, you know, they may not get the same treatment. So somebody that's different, 
somebody who works in film, somebody who works as an actor, somebody who's got a disability. This is the time. If you're really somebody special, if you're really the quarterback, the defensive lineman, you're really that big basketball player, you think you're somebody, that's the time. Show some love. That's a good... I dropped some of these things in because I know you want to learn. No, and, this and, is, and that's, that's the premise of American Real because we're telling the stories of everyone. Right. I don't, you know, and that's why you're here, because of right. your ethos, because just, of who you are. I'm blessed to be here, but I say all those big badasses, because there's a lot of them, Brooks. You think about all the athletes. Yeah. If those people that are big and bad on the defensive line, then you may not have the girlfriend, but you're an athlete. Treat these individual groups, the cats that are gay, the cats in, in theater, the cats on the debate team, the guys that don't look like you, the people with disabilities. That's the time, if you're any person, if you're anybody at all, is the time maybe you'll just say hello. You don't just come down the middle of the aisle and bump somebody. That's the time you might say, I hope you had a good day. Just those few words mean something. That's the time you might look at somebody in their eyes and not just blow by them and you don't see them. But that's the time you look and you say hello. There's times that I see some uh, children, because I have a child with uh, several disabilities, Tommy Jersey. I sit back and I see that child that looks, that's got a certain handicap or disability. I literally don't want them to be uncomfortable. I go out of my way sometimes to make sure I say, hey, how you doing today? I mean, so And much. I ain't real pretty. I just, hey, man, what's happening? Or yeah. give me some, give me mm -hmm. a little. But it's that little thing. So I sit back and this whole thing that you say about American Real, it's interesting where I didn't do it for you for two months. But you're my boy, and I love you. But I didn't do it for you for two months. I sat back and said, just do it. These certain things that American Real, it's interesting who might listen and who might literally say, I'm that athlete. And, you know, next time I see that person, next time I see that person that don't act like me, that don't look like me, they ain't all cool, maybe I'm going to be the guy that says hello to them. That's right. Thank you, because that's why we're doing this. Yeah, man, that's what it's all about, brother. So let's talk about Tommy Jer Jersey. Tommy Jersey. What a boy. Yeah, man. Tommy Jersey. Tommy Jersey is my 12-year-old son. You know, I'm, I'm king of the world. And I can always appreciate a handicap and a, dis a disabled child. But at age 50, I had my own child with a major disability. And now you sit back and say, I grew up as a gentleman. But now it's like to that same person to myself, because I speak to myself, never expect somebody out of something else that I want to do. But at 50, I have a little boy with Prader-Willi syndrome, PWS. It's a genetic disease. It's very rare. It's like 6,600 out of every 100 million or some ungodly crazy number. And uh, where he's starving every second of his life. So if you remember many years ago on Oprah, on CSI, they had a series in which they were showing somebody's TV shows where literally they would have padlocks and chains on cabinets yes. so children wouldn't break in. I know some of the stuff is new to you, Brooksy. You've been my friend. Your family's been my friends forever. Some of the shit I'm telling you is stuff you're not aware of. Right. So my son has that disease, mm -hmm. Prader-Willi syndrome, where he's starving every second of his life. And uh, it was enough to shake you to your core because when I sat in a place called uh, Children's Hospital in Philly with some of the best minds in the world, in the world, and I'm sitting there at the table, 
and I'm sitting there and I did my studies and they called me into the uh, geneticist and about four other people and I'm sitting around this big conference table. I went in there because there are setbacks called, and it's not like setbacks, it's like shattering setbacks like uh, angelmen's. There's many different things where children, your born child could live for two years and die. There are some major different, you know, setbacks out there with genetic battles that people face. And so I was given the one of Prader-Willi syndrome, and that's where we discovered it, at the Children's Hospital in Philly. And is that right when he was born or, or, or shortly thereafter? He was born at Wilson. Okay. And um, he was born at Wilson Hospital and um, for, I don't know if it was seven or eight days, but... You know, when my son was born, all of his limbs, his arms and everything literally flopped right over. It was almost described as a floppy baby. His limbs, he had no strength to hold his arms up. They would just flop over. You understand? Zero strength. Zero capability of breastfeeding. Because my wife is, like I said, a tremendous mother. I think she best breastfed my other two children for like five years, or like forever. So wasn't even breastfeeding. And at a certain point, I can remember, and you always, we always tend to circle back here. And so you keep this topics moving the way you want. But I can remember a doctor saying to me over at uh, Wilson, he said, yeah, man, I, I never remember a guy, a child acting like this. I can remember I said, wow, man, you almost caught something I seen my dad. You almost caught me give you something right across your little, because I'll give you something and you'll, you'll wake you up like mm -hmm. You were never seen. I, I can remember. That's so insensitive. So insensitive. I literally said back, wow, bro. Now, I would never like to punch nobody, Brooksy, to be honest with you, because you might sleep for a long time. But I sat back. I can remember that doctor saying, I'm going to give you one of these right across your. I had him filing something with the hospital, not for litigation, but to sit back and say, you got some guy that's acting like a complete asshole. My heart is shattered. Don't talk to me like that, because I'll knock your ass out right here. And it don't matter where you're at, but you sit back. So my heart was not knowing anything. We didn't know anything other than we were told the child was okay, but his muscles, everything flopped. At that point, uh, we knew we had some severe something, like severe issues. And uh, we ended up, I called this kid who was uh, CEO of Lord's Hospital, uh, John... John was a good cat, man, because I called him about 11 o'clock at night, and um, I said, Johnny, man, I, I got some real difficult things I got to address. I'm about ready to figure out a way to get my kid on a plane and take him to Boston Children's Hospital, because in my earlier days, you know, 10, 12, 14, 15, Boston Children's Hospital is what you always heard about. And he said, John, you know what? I got to tell you something. There's a place called uh, CHOP, Children's Hospital in Philly, that has literally been the top hospital in the country for the last couple of years. He says, why don't you check that out? So I so, remember, yeah. Yeah, so we took him to CHOP. We went through genetic testing, and we came up with a Prader-Willi diagnosis. So it was extremely crushing because I know my child will be with me forever, forever. Will he be able to live independently somewhere someday? Maybe. but will be within feet probably. Mm -hmm. And so he's starving every second of his life. And they he's don't have a cure. Many, there's no cure. There's nothing you can take. Uh, if you allowed him to, there are children with PWS 
that would eat enough in one setting that would implode their organs and they would die. I was lucky enough to build our house and I designed pantries where our refrigerator, every food product, everything is inside our pantry. You understand? Yes. Very modern looking place I designed, but nonetheless I could tell you there's two cubes in the middle of the house and 10 foot ceilings that go eight foot high, very modern, slick looking places, but the one is a pantry and all of our food products are, are set in there. Everything I go through, my wife Catherine has been here with me, like literally we are a team. Sometimes as we talk about trying to see if there's lessons because shit, I got something to learn every day, but my wife Catherine's been there with me for everything. And my daughter Julia and Jack are tremendous. Sometimes major disabilities with a child can break a family apart. Sure. They're huge, they're huge issues for divorce, etc. It's a lot of strain. Sometimes I think that if you could find that deeper calling to pull together, to work together, and realize that this is the time that you need to be a closer family, uh, we became closer. That was our calling. So Tommy ended up with this rare genetic disease, but you know, it goes into something else that we're a rough family. Like we're like rough. My daughter is a great athlete. My son's a great athlete. I mean, we're rough. So we're rough with Tommy. You understand what I'm saying? But somewhere Give along us an the, example. What? Like you could see kids go off the side of the couch. People fight and wrestle off the couch. Right, bounce right. off the floor. <laughs> Tommy could grab you, take you down to... Tommy could grab you, take you down to the ground. No kidding. Still today. You know, we're sort of, we're sort of touchy. Right, right. All with love. Never anger that I've ever seen ever. But, you know, we can wrestle around. And Tommy did the same. But at some point in time, we found out Tommy had 99 degree curvature of the spine as well. So this is out of his spine. This is 99 degree, 90 degrees. This is 90 degrees. So his spine had a 99 degree curvature of the spine. So he has tremendous uh, issues with his entire ribs and everything rotating as well. In which at Shriners, blessing the Shriners because the Shriners are just a tremendous tremendous group of people um, where he now has titanium rods in his back and so when I was talking about being rough we were rough but we didn't realize out of his spine we picked it up somewhere along the line not the first year second year 99 degree curvature of the spine and is that common with what he has not necessarily you know it does happen curvature of the spine mm -hmm. but such degrees are massive I mean, but, like and I that's say, a separate issue that separate you had to issue. deal with so he's been through so a he's lot he's had about seven, eight spinal yeah. surgeries with several more to where they open you from your waist to your neck. So you're on probably one of my favorite and dearest topics that I deal with on an everyday basis. And uh, I'm on it, but my wife, Catherine, is huge. My daughter, Julie, is huge. My son, Jack, is huge when he's in town, but he's in Nashville studying. So anyway, that's Tommy Jersey yeah. story. I'd love Crazy. to meet Tommy Jersey. Dude, and when I named him Tommy Jersey, who would ever have to know? that he was gonna to have to be a real fighter. Big, big. That's right. And he is a fighter. Yep. And his name is Tommy Jersey. That ain't like fictitious. Cause I got a great picture of my dad boxing Jack Dempsey on the wall in our house from 1932. Crazy bro. It's crazy. So anyway man, so, what else you got to fire? Well next I wanna talk about your acting career. Mm-hmm. So you did the theater in college, yep. and you're into the whole dance club scene, and when do you get the first call? 
you know, and the film industry, literally, to be honest, I was just talking to a young lady who's a good friend of mine that I was talking to her coming out of one of the buildings I own, and she said, they're in town auditioning for a movie now. I said, what's that, Lieberstrom? Said, yeah, man, big deal, I ain't going over. Oh, she says, John. What year is this, like in the mid-80s? 92. 92, okay. I think Lieberstrom was done in 92. I got my Screen Actors Guild card in my pocket. Okay, great. 25 years, I carry my Screen Actors Guild card. So I went over there and auditioned, and uh, you know, it was a big-time movie uh, production company with some big-time stars. Bill Pullman was, who turned into be a, a you know, five or ten million dollar type of actor per film. Uh, Kevin Anderson, Michael Figgis, leaving Las Vegas, great director. Two producers, that big-time producers, that to this day are still doing massive, massive hundred million dollar films, and both of these guys. I spoke to this week. Can you imagine? No Just out of the clear blue, a cat named Michael Flynn, Chris Brigham. They call me and I'm speaking to, hey, John, who, who's this picture of me and you? And, oh, that's my wife. And you guys, uh, you know, there was like six or seven. You recognize? So I just spoke to these guys. So, you know, that was a tangent that I went off into the film industry. And uh, that was my audition. And people uh, thought that I had a, a definitely something that I could be successful in. And they got together and they said, hey, at this little shot, it was up at a hill up on Mill Hill, a house they were shooting at. I said, you know, we're going to give you a line here. And um, I said, yeah, man. And they said, we're going to give you a line because you know what? If you get that line, they said, you'll be able to apply for your Screen Actors Guild card because you can't get a line without a card and you can't get a card without a line. And so I ended up getting a line. Those people supported me. And that is literally how I got a Screen Actors Guild card in Binghamton, New York, which I bet if you check out... How many people got Screen Actors Guild cards in Binghamton, New York? Nobody, because it's like, holy shit, upstate New York. So not even so much upstate, just a little Binghamton, you know. So that's how it started. Since then, you know, there was a friend of mine here locally, uh, Joey Burns, who's a tremendous assistant director on major films. His entire family does it. They're just a, a quality person, and we always had respect. When he hit a film somewhere, he would call and say, John, something's going on here. I'd call and grab a little action. And when I went there, I went there with respect, focus, and confidence. And so when you have that type of a background, people have no problem giving you a little direction and say, right. make the call. I make the call, you get your foot in the door, you do your thing. You understand? So it's really a lot of it is who you know, right? In, in that oh, you industry. could break in on your own. You could make a move because you could start bid. This goes back to just like being an entrepreneur. It's a freaking amazing sometimes, Brooksy, how everything goes full circle. But start as a bit part. Are you you want to be the big movie star? Well, how about if you start as an extra? How about if you start as a bit line? How about if you start with a line? I mean, get getting a line or a few lines in something. It's not like you walk in and get it. Right. You see what I'm saying? You have to so, earn it. Yeah. You know, you, you either got to earn it, you got to finish school somewhere, you've got to audition certain places. Do the things behind the scenes the things, to, to, to get you sometimes there. Sometimes you get, yeah. the, get the action. Mm -hmm. So that started here in town, and, you know, I ended up working. I ended up auditioning for Die Hard with a Vengeance, uh, literally, without kidding you, co-starring role in Die Hard. I can remember seeing uh, Joe on the set, Burns on the set in Manhattan. He says, what are you doing? I'm standing there talking to Samuel Jackson. Said, I auditioned for a film. He said, what are you talking about? I said, I just auditioned for Targo. He looked at me and said, are you shitting me? I said, yeah, man. Just he said, John, that ain't just a part. That's a co-starring role. And Targo was Jeremy Iron's sidekick. Okay. Just like Bruce Willis and Samuel Jackson. Right. 
Targo and Irons. No kidding. And I was probably down to the top five in the country. That's impressive. That must have been. That walked must have been. out of the clear blue. What a Walked great into the thing to audition for it. Wow. Walked over to the set. Saw him on the set. But this was just me opening the door on my own. But so you say, John, what would have happened? Listen, if you land the role, you, you could end up doing film. You could end up making some big monies as long as you could keep your head screwed on. Because it's not like just because you did this role, that one's there next, or that one's there. But I had audition for that part. It was tremendous. Um, you know, it was just interesting. It goes back to telling people to be prepared. I went there not prepared for the audition. John, we'd like you to come in and audition for this part. Do you have an Eastern European accent? Yes, of course I do. I didn't have shit. Of course, I'll see you in New York tomorrow. I'll be there. Shit, I went out and picked up movies from Zsa Zsa Gabor. And <laughs> I, this is the truth. This is really? my wife with me, too. Zsa Zsa Gabor. Anything I... Now, I took five years of German. I didn't, wasn't thinking. Eastern European, I wasn't thinking. Bang it with some German BS. Right. So I walked into the audition, not prepared with an Eastern European accent. What did you, what did you do? The lady looked at me and she said, um, and I, you know, when you're in Manhattan in these places, it's intense, bro. Trust me. Sure. This ain't like junior varsity. This is like big time. You're talking about diehard with a vengeance. You dig what I'm saying? Yep. So I sat back because I always had this attitude because really you said, remember you said earlier you fear anything? I don't fear anything because you can't do shit to me. First of all, you ain't going to outthink me. If you make a move on me, boom, we got problems. So I'm a confident cat. That, so I said to her, hey, listen. Send us out, and uh, I'm just going to do it the way I want to do it. John, this is what the director wants. He said, yeah, just send it. This is it. I did it my way, not thinking I was right either. Just a shitty attitude. Uh, respectfully shitty, if you know what I'm right. saying. Uh, definitely didn't get the role. I worked one day on that film, and um, I just grabbed the bit part, literally, just to get a day on the film, on a subway, when it was blowing up. Was it a good lesson for you, though? Yeah, because I found out later that they have tapes, that dialect tapes, that you could study a mm. tape. If you were in a bookstore in New York City or the actors there, you could have went to the bookstore, picked up a dialogue tape, and you could have studied it and learned an Eastern European accent and whatever. Not that you'd have it down, but two, three, four, five hours, you could learn right. how to change up your words and read it. Boom. The thing is preparation. Prepare. So did you blow it? Yes. Did you blow it and feel bad? Big deal. BFT. You know what I mean? What are you going to do? It's like you, you, can't, you can't change the tides, but the fact of the matter is being in Binghamton, getting the call to repair the next day, could you, did you have a short enough window? It's like you said, would you sing today? Said, yeah, man, Brooks, I'll do it. You see what I'm saying? Yes. So, but I, you know, I went ahead and paid some guy 275 bucks for an hour a week later to work on my accent. I went out and picked up the tapes, but... You know, second is the first to lose. Yeah, yeah. Think about that. Yeah. That's how close it was. Just like when I did Kiss of the Dragon, I got my acting coach who loved my work, huge in Midtown, because I studied at certain film schools. And he, when he was working on Kiss of the Dragon, which I hired him in Paris to work with Luc Besson, Jet Li, Bridget Fonda, and they needed a fighter. He says, John, I told this cat about you. He says, send him a tape. So I sent uh, over to Paris, I sent uh, just me training because I work with a lot of different you know, weapons as I described. Not described, they are. And had a little thing that I put down and set them. They said, they want you over here. 
So I was one of the few, few, one, two, three, whatever, Americans on the set. And you were there for a couple months, Two right? months. Wow. Kiss of the Dragon. Brought family and... Brought my family over for a couple weeks. Wow. You know, and I just had a bit part, but it was a little bit more like in the film, in the film ministry, I became good friends with, again, the star of the film, like good friends with them. And, um, you know, there's sometimes like if I wanted, if you were sitting right here, like closer than that coffee cup, in a martial arts film, sometimes like this, you could be right here on the side of me, like I was on about 50 shots, and the shot is right here. It's like, holy shit, I'm right, dude, like where am I? Right. But, you know, again, that's the way it is, because you could end up on the cutting room floor. And this one, martial arts films are moving like this, and the shots are tight, and I'm right there with this co-starring role, um, you know, with the guy that's a star, and I just got a bit part, you know, I'm trying to shoot the shit up with Jet Li and firing bullets all over the place to where I remember one day I got the side of my face right here, like dot, 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 from a machine gun fire from the guy standing on the side of me, and I'm saying, Oh shit, man! I'm in Paris. There ain't no screen actors guild here. That's right. You know what I'm saying? I'm sure it's big time because it's big time director, b biggest in Europe for sure. But I can remember that machine gun fire hit me in the side of my face. Like, oh man! I said, I'm stepping back on this next shoot. But so you know, that was a tremendous experience. It was a great experience. Um, you know, I went there and Jet Li brings in this entire fight team. And my, you know, I'm a stocky dude. I mean, I could lose about 40 pounds now. But even when I'm 185. I'm still five foot nine, sort of mm -hmm. jacked, and I, I, he's got guys that are flipping off the floor and flipping <laughs> off the roof, and I'm sitting there saying, man, all I could do is kick as high as your chin and jack you up, you know what I'm saying? But I got guys laying there on the floor, flipping up and throwing these kicks, you know, that are just crazy. And the, that must have been it was amazing. tremendous, because you sit back and say, wow, I'm with like some of the best martial arts in the fighters world. in the world. Yeah. What was Jet Li like? That was great. We had breakfast together a couple of times. I can remember one day sitting there and he came up and asked to sit down because, you know, I used to sort of try to be independent. So I was sitting there by myself and uh, uh, just came up. He was just a genuine character. But, you know, Jed is like legit. Cool. And grabbed that on my own as well. You know, other than I had a guy working in the film in Paris and Munchko looking for a fighter. I told him I got an actor who's a fighter. And that's what got me in the film instead of just being a fighter. Robert De Niro. You know, De Niro is, um, you know, a situation in which literally, again, my friend who was the assistant director on the film uh, says, Munchko, come on down. We, Joey Burns, we had great respect. Jojo is a tremendous cat on the set, acts professional, always respectful. I went down, sent in, uh, put in my uh, place to go in and just do some bit work. Normally, if I did bit work, I'd never like to be background work. What does that mean? I'm sorry. You know, when you have a film, you got people that walk on the street. You got people that portray, you know, mm -hmm. just background, sort of the color parts in the background. If you're going to do some bit work and the director or the casting people have confidence in you, maybe you find yourself with one, two, three feet away from the stars, five feet away from the stars. When you're that close, sky's the limit, if you can think. Yep. You dig what I'm saying? Yes. So it's like in Night in the City, I'm in the basement at the Palladium nightclub and Erwin Winkler, you know, the guy that filmed Raging Bull, oh, yeah. the director of Raging Bull. Yep. Uh, I think Joey's down there, but I can remember uh, grabbing this old man, Jack Warden, sticking him up against the wall, throwing my forearm in him and De Niro grabbing me, pushing me off. So all of a sudden you take a little bit work and it changes into something work and maybe something builds off it like it did in Kiss of the Dragon when I'm there.
all of a sudden I'm tight on the scenes and I look at the director and every direction's going out in French and then they give it to me in English. I see. Dude, I said, wow, I'm pretty bad. That's man. right. <laughs> and I'd say, hey, why don't I, what do you think about if I say this? He says, yeah, man, I like that, do that. And so then all of a sudden, uh, you know, it was like, why don't I go up and flush him out? Because it's when I get blown up inside some 40 foot metal chute when I'm trying to kick Jet's face down the scene. And then I say, why don't I go upstairs and, you know, tell him I'll flush him out? He says, yeah, man. But I ended up with a nice line in there. And then why don't I, what do you think about if I say you after that line, die, you piece of, yeah, man, I like that too. So all of a sudden, you know, you know, you end up with a few lines. But you were taking the initiative too. But you always got to be respectful and mm -hmm. calm because no everybody wants something. Sure. But if you're overbearing or in the wrong position, they could send, send that asshole home too. Get them off the set. So you've got to be really calm, pro, with a direction that's going to assist the scene. And know your opening, right? And know where you're going. Yeah. And you know what? And know when you can get it. Mm -hmm. So De Niro, there's a place in Night in the City. Boom, I just jumped in, was able to uh, you know, get, get literally up front and close to where I can remember Jack Warden, who was an old boxing fan, threw a punch one time. Uh, and I, I'm five inches off his face, but he threw a punch. And I slid like this and caught his punch in the middle of my hand. I said, wow, that shit is cool. Wow. Because it was no plan. But right. he threw a punch yeah. because he was a grizzly old bastard. Okay. Not mean, though. Just a tough old timer. Tough old timer. Like all the old timers, tough. But through that punch, and I went, whew, caught that pinch. I said, wow, is that shit good? Because you never know if it's going to make the film. But it was like, you know, a gruffy guy with him. But great scene. You know, I worked in Casino in Vegas. Uh, Martin Scorsese? Yeah, with Scorsese. Uh, De Niro Standen and I became really good friends. Johnny Polsey, he worked as Bobby Standen for 12 years. And so I make a phone call, man, what are you doing? I'm in Vegas working. I said, what is it, casino? I said, tell the people I want to come out and grab something. Tell the casting, assistant, or even extras cast. Munchko's going to come out here. You'd like to grab something? You got something? Yeah, bring them out here. So, like I say, you can grab extra work because where am I? I'm, I don't have an agent throwing my name out there. So I'd grab a bit piece looking to develop it. And so I went out there and ended up with uh, making friends with one of the sons who was the Four Seasons son. He did the same thing I did. So you remember the Frankie Valley and the Four Seasons? Yes. So he got behind a bar. I was on one side of the bar. But we worked in a small place the size of Uncle Tony's or smaller. But in that room was Scorsese, De Niro, Stone, Incredible. Pesci, Alan King. I mean, you know, it's sort of a little bizarre scene to find yourself you're in Binghamton New York last night and here you're in this Vegas <laughs> you're in this little not even Vegas just in this little room with all these characters so you never know but I remember sleeping on the uh, couch it was probably three or four o'clock in the morning because that's how film sets go sometimes and I can remember Scorsese uh, coming up and saying hey man do you see what a great picture of you in Premier Magazine because I did Age of Innocence okay looked unique man you know 1800s or whatever the hell time period and there's Winona Ryder and four women and myself and a picture of myself and these four women ended up in Premier Magazine Daniel Day-Lewis on the cover and awesome. a little months ago just got a little piece awesome Ten, three second story about that so I go there to the Joey Burns was on that set and he was he's always been a man first AD second AD and he says, yeah, man, make a phone call. So I go down to, I think it was like the film uh, production place in Queens, big Astoria, Queens, big movie house. 
So, but I, I go to a place for a wardrobe and some guy looks at me and I've always been sort of like, look like what I do. He said, yeah, man, you, you, can't get, you can't work here. I said, hey, man, I don't know what to tell you. Yeah, but you're bald. I said, I know I'm bald, man. He said, because I talk a little slang because I'm slang. So I said, yeah, I got it, man. All I can tell you is they told me from the set, come on down and get set up for wardrobe. So I said, just call the set, man, tell them. And they said, I think Scorsese personally got involved. I think Joey Burns was in there. I think Scorsese got, <laughs> yeah, man, get the guy set up. They had bald people back then. <laughs> so I end up in this scene. I look like legit. I mean, I look like, really? I look legit enough that you could have cut me off in that picture in Premier Magazine, but I end up in a great magazine with a great shot and a little funny story to say, yeah, dude, just call the set. You have to share that picture with us. That's. I got that. I got that. Photo. It's a great that. picture of uh, that's awesome. So anyway, that's, you know, the film industry, it's always entertaining. And I went into it with the idea of full circle again. I'm a dad. I'm a real estate developer and, you know, past nightclub owner, but real estate developer father. So I'd get in a car and go down. Sometimes I sit back and say, what would happen if you gave instead of 5%, if you gave 80 or 90%? because I can make phone call tomorrow. Think about this thing here, tomorrow, and end up on a set somewhere grabbing bit work. Now again, I try never to grab extra work where your background scene. I do it in something like De Niro's, but it's sort of like I worked at a movie called Extreme Measures with Hugh Grant. Mm -hmm. I remember that. And there's a lot of people underground, you know what I mean? And there was some really handsome kid there in the scene, like you're, I'm, I'm like one of the moles. But I know where I'm standing because I'm smart enough to get set up. You dig what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. With the camera. Right. And some really handsome guy tried to slide. I said, hey, dude, like literally, you need to step back, bro. I ain't moving and you need to take your shit back. And I would literally be respectful. But like, don't be trying to step on my action right. because camera's here. Yep. I'm here. Yep. Somebody come over here from New York City, Long Island. Forget a lot New York City because Midtown's where it's at and say, hey, dude, can you slide over? No, oh, dude, I can't slide over. Take your shit back there, bro. It's like, unless you want to, you know. And hold your ground, right? I mean, there's certain times, you know, if the director right. sends them, if somebody That's sends it, right. you right. obey the That's code right. and the rule. Yep. But if somebody's trying to step on your shot. Yep. And you're getting like, there early. <laughs> so I ended up in a tremendous scene at, at that as well. You know what I mean? Neat. Ended up in a couple of scenes, great scenes in there where when Hugh Grant steps in and the doctor step in, I'm, set, I'm setting right up there. So some great scenes. So I would make the best of the situation. But sometimes I say, if you gave 70 or 80% effort, what could you have grabbed? But to me, it's like BFD. We all understand call letters. So I try not to swear on your set because I happen to respect it. That's okay. But I can drop anything at any time. You, you know, Brooksy, the truth of the matter is that in New York, everybody's cutthroat. You know what I mean? Yeah. I have worked in a Madonna video. There was 8,000 people that auditioned for like 50, part, 50 people, whatever. I mean, I walked in, I saw a line about, whew, man, six, seven, eight hundred yards line, four or five wide. And I sat back, I said, I said to my wife, Catherine, who was with me, I said, I'm not waiting in that line. So I went to a place called Tribeca Grill, mm -hmm. ended up meeting the cameraman that was shooting, fact, not fiction, shooting Madonna's video. It was the same cameraman 
that I shot Liberstrom. <laughs> wow. In the Tribeca Grill. Wow. In Manhattan. And I say, what are you doing? He says, I'm here. I said, that's how I was coming in. He says, why don't you just come down? You'll be working tonight. Unbelievable. Fact. These are, luckily there's, you can't even talk bullshit like that. Hired in the hallway at the Tribeca Grill by the cameraman that shot on Liberstrom. Boom. Do you believe in coincidences? No. Because coincidence means it's uh, somebody else has got control. If I'm not in New York, if I don't put myself where I got to be, it don't happen. Coincidence is nice. You know, even, you know, as, mu as much as I like to be a religious man, it ain't even like God saying, by the way, just be here tonight because God says, John, your dead ass could be in Binghamton on the couch. It could be in the car. It could be here. I think that if you want to be somewhere, you got to be where you're at. But most importantly, be ready and prepared. I've showed you when I haven't been prepared. I was there in the hallway. So I ended up working Madonna's video in a small little bar downtown. It was bizarre. So you got that job too? Bizarre. Wow. My wife came and visited me at 3 o'clock in the morning one time. And uh, she's sitting there on the set with me. And nobody got on the set because this is when Madonna was huge. Mm. And so she's sitting there looking at me. My wife, Catherine, who's gorgeous. And... Um, they come upstairs and say, hey, guys, get ready, man. You're going to be going downstairs and get set up. Looking at my wife, too. You're going to be going downstairs getting set up. And she looks at me. I said, like, don't say nothing. So, boom, she ended up getting in the shot downstairs. That's so. great. <laughs> awesome. Tremendous. So where did you learn how to sing? You know, I started singing when I was young at St. Mary's Assumption. And I did a the lot choir. of lead vocals there, singing, and then, uh, you know, continued to sing forever. I do a lot of uh, soulful, like, you know, Marvin Gaye, Temps. So a lot of my stuff was like uh, Luther Vandross, Marvin Gaye, uh, a lot of the soul singers back in the day, Four Tops. You know, this is what I grew up on. You see what, because I used yeah. to shine shoes when I was a kid and go into bars. So, you know, places like Gentleman Joe's downtown, SDS, Joey Minicelli's, different bars, I would shine shoes. So I grew up. Uh, with a really background, very soulful, uh, brotherly background. Cause, so that's what my love it still is. And so I sang at St. Mary's, and I developed it through college. And again, never really pursued that too much either. But I can remember doing the national anthem at the Broome County Arena, walking out on the ice with 6,600 people. Were you there that night, Brooks? Yes, I was. Were you there Jason that night? Jason days. Right. Yes. It was crazy. Right. You were right there on the ice. Dude. You walk out there with 6,600 people. I think I might have sang that like an octave higher than I normally sang. It's like, holy shit, I like blew that thing up. I can remember Spezza and Emery and I talking about it. So but so that's what I enjoy. Plus, I sang New Life Ministries, uh, contemporary worship out there for five years. So nice. it was always entertaining, bro. And your son, Jack, is uh, on a Jack's music in career. Nashville right now, wants to be a singer, musician, uh, down at... Uh, uh, Bel Belmont University in Nashville and is studying music and um, music business, music, and he wants to be a singer. My daughter, Julia, graduated Binghamton University two years ago. Stupid, smart as a freaking, you know, the shit she studies, it's like, dude, that's like a foreign language to me. You know, she's just on another planet. She majored in economics, graduated in cum laude, beautiful, intelligent, smart as a whip, and I think she's got the world wherever she plans on going. She's been around the house uh, in terms of working on real estate and getting ready, and she's going to 
be blasting off pretty soon. Too fast for me, but been blessed to have her with us so long. So next two, three, four, five, six months, whatever. I wish it was like this, but you know, I think she's making a play into Midtown Manhattan and doing real estate or medical sales or whatever. But we all have to grow. We tremendous. All, yeah. Gotta let the that's, gotta let them fly. That's so. right. Um, why are we here on this earth? I think that, um, you know, why are we here on this earth once we land? I think definitely to try to make it a little better place. Where I didn't do this interview with you for two months, to a kid that I love, respect, great baseball player, great family, somebody I love to see, because I like to be, really I'd like to be humble. I'd like not to be giving these interviews because worthy, not worthy. It's like, you know, it's sort of like, shut your mouth and just do what you're supposed to do. But I hear from these conversations that we're having, it's like, wow, you've done a few things. Sometimes when I sent you those memos the other day, on the, I said, holy shit, if you really told some of these stories about the 14, 15 years in a nightclub business and being in Studio 54 and hanging out at a round table with Ozzy Osbourne until five or six in the morning, uh, Judas Priest, uh, ACDC, Rod Stewart and his girlfriend hanging out. and You sit back and say, there's a lot of stories. You know what I'm saying? There's a lot of stuff. And in my stories, I've got one, two, three, four, five people that are always around. Because a lot of people could talk a lot of S-H-I-T. We spell at our household. We don't swear. Okay. But in mine, it's been great because I've had one, two, three, four, five people always around at these different parties of mine. It's really not one-on-one -on -one because <clears throat> not designed. So why are we here? Definitely to try to make it a better place. Definitely here to try to live a life for yourself uh, to be a better person. Because if you're living for yourself to be a better person, to be a better giver, to be a better person, it's going to be like sunshine. It's going to be like rays of sunshine. They'll expand out like this. So people will see you as a better person, they'll want to be a better person. And I say this to you, I told you about me becoming a, a Christian. It was a, big, it was a big thing for me because same as Catholic, same, you know, it's, but for me it was, you know, it was a big move to become a born again Christian because I always loved God, but I always said, well, I love God, I'm loving him Sunday afternoon. I'll leave church. So you took it to the right next after, level. Right after communion and maybe I'll have bad actions and bad deeds and but you know today I try for the last 15 20 years trying to be better but um, you know it goes to one of these things Brooksy that as you try to send off that impact out to everybody do you follow what I'm saying yes. as you really try to be the person that's going to impact people around you you hope these type of stories that you and I are discussing that that athlete, that high school athlete at Binghamton, at Vestal, at Shenango Forks, hears and says, yeah, man, I'm one of those badasses. I'm the man. And I'd say, then maybe in your heart you'll impact that person that you might have thought was a gay cat, a disabled cat. There's so many little different genres, but sometimes people get mistreated. And when they're younger, 14, 16, 17, it's impactful. Mm -hmm. And if people gave them a little bit of love, that cat would say, holy shit, the quarterback said hello to me today. 
the head basketball player was really nice to me. Wow. Just the little Makes thing. So that's when you say, why are we here? I think just to give a little bit, to give a little bit, but to be impactful for yourself. Because if you're impactful for yourself, I, I think that it will exude. I was going to tell you this 10 second story. I got sidetracked for a second, but when I became a Christian, I was singing at New Life Ministries, which I always loved singing. And I could sing. I mean, me and Luther Vantros, bang. <laughs> so I'm up there singing, but I can remember after church one time, and I think my wife was with me, you know, and um, some cat came and said, oh, shit, months ago, man, the cat that used to be at a nightclub on it on? Yeah. He says, you know what? When I saw you up on stage singing and you were a Christian, I knew if God accepted you, he'd accept anybody. I, I know that I can be a Christian. I sat back and said, wow, that was a really indirect, like, you were freaking bad. And if you're good enough to be a Christian, yeah. I can be a Christian. Yeah. And it's like, you are right, because I was bad. And, you know, I could cause a lot of trouble. And so the door is open for you, too. So it was a good story that I wanted to tell you. Why are we here? To see if we could continue to improve. Because we, even to this day, I got a million things I could still improve. Be a better father. Be a better husband. Be more conscientious. And try not to lose focus on this business world that there's more out there than me being big shit. There's more out there. And my children and my wife... And that's why sometimes I say, take a break from it all. Right. Just go hang out. Yeah. And you talked about storytelling. Um, you know, our, our tagline here is everyone has a story. And I think the art of storytelling has been lost over the years. So really, that's why exactly what you just explained is why we're here. I want to tell people stories because everyone has one. Crazy. And sometimes you don't think about all that you've done over the years until you know until you actually sit down and, and talk and and it's powerful and it's impactful and people are going to listen in this community and people are going to be listening all over the world because that's our stage it's a worldwide stage so you're going to impact people here but you'll also impact them you know it could be anywhere in the world well really the credit goes out to you for being that guy that woke up that said, I want to get something done. See, it's hard for you to listen to the compliment. Not that you had not handled it well, but it's, you're the guy that said, I'm going to do this. Thank you. And this is a tremendous thing that you're doing. But you said you're going to do it, and you followed it. And even to the point of you talking to me two months ago and saying, what the frick? Why is this cat doing it? But it's like you knew why, because you know, sometimes I'd rather not be put out there mm -hmm. and though I know what I've done because these stories you know I live with them so I'm familiar and the stories are massive I mean there's the detail is crazy you know what I'm saying yeah. I mean the film detail of a hundred things I didn't say or the 5,000 nightclub stories that I sat back when I sent you that stuff I said well there's enough shit in here if you really told the real story which I probably wouldn't I'd why be bad oh shit I was rough let's hear one we need one story. Tough, man. You mean like the time some bouncer came into my place and said, yeah, man, I'm getting some shots. And he said, he's the baddest guy around. I said, yeah, that's because you ain't ever effed with a cat like me. And I'm just a small dude because, again, I'm never pushy. But, but I can make that line. He says, you shitting me? I'd kill you. I said, I'll tell you what. Let's go in the back room, me and you right now. And we'll, we will literally 
address this right now. Now, now think about how casual and nice that is. No big push-ins. He said, yeah, I said, let's do it. So there's a guy named Tony Roberts, who was a state trooper here in town. There was a teacher from Susquehanna Valley, Noel Topper, and Tony's girlfriend at the time. And the three of them went back. They moved the pool table out of the way. They all sat in chairs. And this cat uh, ended up literally just decided he's gonna take the attack to me. So he did. And when he was laying down on his cross me and punching me in the abs, but looking away, took him by the back of his hair, looked at his face and hit him so hard across his chin, it opened up like a faucet. And then when it opened up like a faucet, I knew he was like, holy shit. Then I bit a hole through the side of his face. I didn't take the whole meat out, just a big circle that I bit him in the face and then threw him off. But before it started, those guys were sitting in chairs, sitting in chairs. Watching. I'll take Munch Go, I'll give you five to one, 10 to one. How old were you? 38. 20s? Wow. Oh, in my 30s. Wow. 30s. But, you know, these type of stories where you, you literally, there's no violence, there's no anger. It's like, well, let's go in the back and let's address it. And just went in the back and addressed it. But you sit back with a story like that, it's like, that's some crazy shit. Yeah. I just, think about this, Brooksy. So Noel Topper, who's in Vegas today, like lives there, literally just wrote me back and says, John, do you remember the night we sat there? I said, I couldn't forget. He says, John, I remember it like yesterday. Now, this is on my Facebook in the last two weeks. No coincidence. I sit at a table over in Bojan's confettis and sitting there with Ozzy Osbourne until five or six in the morning with about six or seven people on the table. And, you know, Ozzy was always absolutely crazy. And my son, Tommy, loves Ozzy Osbourne. But Ozzy was off on his party tangent. I said, you know, I can remember, he said, yeah, Ricky Pace asked him, I heard you bit ahead of a bat, yeah. He says, yeah, my friend eats glass, because I used to eat Christmas bulbs or glass I used to eat, you know what I mean? But it's Is sort that of- true? Yeah. So it's times like, you know, you're sitting like, who would sit back and say, you're sitting at a table with Ozzy Osbourne until five or six in the morning, and I got a, a little paragraph or two Ozzy wrote that night that I got on the back of one of our menus about a girl with her wooden leg floating down a river or something. Hmm. but. There's a hundred different stories like this that are sort of crazy. Yeah. You know what I mean? Well, you've lived uh, so, and you're still young, so you have a lot of life to live. But you, God willing. You've lived a long, nice life, and, and you've accomplished a lot. Uh, just a couple more questions. Yeah. Um, any success secrets that you could share? Secrets is sometimes to make that move, don't be afraid to share. Most importantly, we mentioned it earlier in the show, when you share, make sure you give 100% effort. And what you bring of the value to the table is true value, not value that you imposed on it to think it's a value. Make sure it's a value that the people you're doing business with look at as a value. That's sort of the, for the real estate business, but it as well goes for a cat that wants to open up a nightclub that decides on bringing partners in and one guy's doing all the work, but the other ones, maybe they don't offer anything. Right. Some people would say, well, I brought the cash. And you know what, sometimes it's a shitty attitude, but sometimes it's enough that it's a good business partner. If somebody's a financier, it's a That's pretty okay strong too. move. If they got enough trust in you, then they deserve big props, they deserve big respect, and you should be sharing that with them, uh, especially if you're the designer and builder. 
general contractor. So when you got a person that wants to be a financial partner, that's a great asset and you should respect it and develop those uh, partnerships with big respect because it takes a team. And sometimes it takes a kid like you as the, the uh, interviewer and all the things you do and you're working with a new sound and video guy and it takes a team to create what you do. So in my situation as we create it, to appreciate the people working for you, to appreciate your partner and just know that there's a great value to having friends that have that type of confidence in you. And then it goes back to the same thing, make sure you produce and have the same uh, giving and talents back to them. Just don't get taken advantage of, but make sure the same type of love because right. There's a lot of people with big scratch out there. That's what I want to tell my daughter sometimes in real estate in Manhattan. You could look at a five, 10, $15 million place. If you know about the sale before somebody else does, it does, how could you? Easy, you sit in a room. I might sell my condo. What are you looking for? I'm looking for $9.5 million. Have you get listed it yet? No, I don't even know, but I'm thinking about doing it. Boom, you sit back and if it's got a big value, hey, hey Mark, hey Susie, I got a place that's thinking about selling something. Do you think we could potentially sell it for 11 and a half? Do you think we could? I got the scratch to do it. Well, I, I'm not giving you the name. I'm not telling you who it is. I'm not telling you where it is. If we do it, do you want to do this as a 50-50 deal? So it goes back to the word of wisdom you said, what, hold your water. Mark Billabong over here at 57th uh, Broadway and 7th, apartment 2D, he's got this for sale. Well, you've just given away, maybe she don't need you because some people have ethics and not do it, but a lot of people don't have the ethics. And um, so therefore you sit back and say, let's do something together. And they say, if you got something, I'll finance it. And then you need to know how to carry the ball through the rest of the field, which means put it in writing, do it respectfully, do it professionally with the ABCs because there are people out there that will take advantage of the situation. So my point is it's not any less love, it's really more love to put it in writing and cover the ABCs so people don't take advantage of a talent. Because a lot of people make a lot of money and there is a catch with those jobs and those businesses. You know what I'm saying? Big time money. This has been awesome, John. You're the Thank best, you. Man. One last question yes. before we let you go, and that is, what do you want your legacy to be? That I was um, a great father. It's literally probably number one. That I loved my children huge. Uh, I would like it to literally even be that I was a great husband. He was a Christian. And he really designed some tremendous looking lofts. As we discussed, we're sitting in a building I used to own. I used to live in this building for three years, three years, maybe longer, but at least three years. Um, some people say I was the first to be living in loft environments in downtown Binghamton. You know, I built a place uh, at Burger Ski Center, 23 Henry Street. Many, many people, if some people put, want to put these titles on it, Sometimes, I don't know if I really give a shit, but I may have been the first to start building student housing in downtown Binghamton when I did 23 Henry Street, 1984, 1983. Going way back. I'm like old as dirt, 
he did with me. Mm -hmm. But 1984, doing Burger Ski Center for 60 students. May have been the first to build student housing in downtown Binghamton. May have been the first to live in modern lofts, not like some little flim-flam shamble apartments, but live in my living room and kitchen were 2,000 square feet, 1,800 square feet. The house I designed in Vestal, I designed after my lofts almost in downtown, just far more modern, but still slick. So that's the legacy. I'd like to be known as, you know, John Muchko was a guy that literally started doing the student housing in downtown, started loft living in downtown, practiced what I preached, um, and probably foremost, uh, being a good person, was creative, worked his ass off, grew up standing in line with his family, picking up a box of powdered milk, a brick of cheese, a big jar of peanut butter with two inches of oil on the top at Columbus Park, standing in line. And um, even to this day, I've got nothing resolved. You know, you could always be, have your ass kicked next week. You know what I'm saying? Not necessarily physical, but in business. So knowing that there's nothing, don't, don't ever think it's so comfortable that you can't run into a buzz. So I'll keep working. So I hope that gives you a little insight. I'm, I'm like sort of so blessed that you asked me, Roger. I know I said no for months, but um, it's because, you know, it's, it's way better in my life to be humble and not talk about it. Even those stories are pretty entertaining. It's sort of like, holy shit. I know it. And look, we couldn't do this without you and the other guests, and I really yeah. do appreciate it. Thank well, you. Thank you so much. This has been great. And crazy, I can't man. wait to share your story. Yeah, man. We'll see how you do. <laughs> we'll see you. how you put all this stuff down. <laughs> Thank you. I'll see you, brother.